data, privacy. Privacy rights versus the public's right to know. Clean machines are ruled by algorithm, which are made by humans who are ruled by emotion. Explores how the tension between First Amendment and privacy rights has developed within digital media in the modern age. Failing to safeguard young people and their privacy. Welcome back. This is episode four of The Lockdown. Now, I bet you thought I'd vanished off the face of the earth. It's been around six or seven months since the last episode, but I've just been very busy travelling. Back in July, I managed to get back to the UK to see friends and family. I spent some time in London, this time as a tourist. Now, the last time I was there was probably around eight years ago, and it was pleasantly surprising. It was much cleaner than I remember. I spent some time in Notting Hill, visiting the bookshops, the markets soaking in the sights and sitting in coffee shops, just watching the world go by. And also been travelling a lot for work as well, discussing privacy and security with CISOs in Los Angeles this time. Now, a CISO is a chief information security officer, and these are the folks that are responsible for securing the information and data for an organisation. Now, while I was in Los Angeles, I had to visit some filming locations. I'm a big fan of film and TV, One of those locations was the house from the Nightmare on Elm Street movie, which was very cool. While I was there, actually, someone mentioned seeing celebrities quite often, and they said they saw Jennifer Lawrence just a few years ago. This got me thinking, could Jennifer do what I did? Just look at the shops, find a coffee shop somewhere, just relax, perhaps read a book? Well, I highly doubt that is the case. Privacy doesn't typically come with the territory of being a celebrity. Now, my daughter is an aspiring actress. She just loves the art of acting. But she is not doing this to be famous. Unfortunately, though, success as an actor means just that. Actors, musicians, any celebrity, they're not typically cybersecurity experts. Now, I'm sure that successful movie stars probably have world-class legal teams and advisors behind them. But I doubt many have cybersecurity experts advising them on how to protect their digital lives. Now, one of the things I like to follow is the Verizon Data Breach Report, which they publish each year. They highlight that there are three ways in which an attacker gains access to an organisation, and that's through phishing, stolen credentials, and exploitation of vulnerabilities. Now, you may be thinking, well, that sounds like it's got a lot to do with technology. But no, that's not necessarily the case. Phishing, for example, this is where an attacker will craft an email, a forgery, making it look like it's come from your bank or your employer, for example. And it's designed to trick you into revealing your credentials. Now, the vulnerabilities they're exploiting, these aren't buried in code. These are very human vulnerabilities, our very own psychology. Which is the theme of today's podcast, the psychology of social engineering, and what happened to Jennifer Lawrence in 2014. and Jennifer Lawrence is at the peak of her career. An Oscar-winning actress with a long list of blockbuster movies on her ever-expanding IMDb page. She is gracing magazine covers and really has become a household name by her early 20s. Life is good. You might think that someone like Jennifer would be untouchable, particularly when it comes down to something as personal as her private photo collection. 
Yet even for someone as high-profile as Jennifer, she isn't immune to cyber-attacks and scams. We often assume that celebrities with their extensive resources are better protected than the rest of us. They have legal teams and extensive support networks, but when it comes to digital security and privacy, we're all in the same boat. So let's discuss iCloud. I get it, it's convenient. Take a photo on your iPhone and it's instantly available on all of your devices. It's backed up to the cloud, you can create shared albums. It is really convenient. However, you are trusting your personal digital assets, photos and videos, notes, passwords, to a third party, in this case, Apple. Now, while iCloud security really has improved since 2014, nothing is 100% secure. Now, Jennifer learned this the hard way, becoming one of the most high-profile victims of a large-scale privacy invasion known as the Fappening. Now, the person behind this was called Ryan Collins, He sent emails pretending to be Apple, tricking his victims to reveal their username and password. Once armed with this information, he accessed their iCloud accounts, downloaded all of their photos and videos, and then they ended up online. Now you might be wondering, how could she fall for this? But let's not jump to conclusions. This wasn't some run-of-the-mill Nigerian print scam. This was a form of social engineering called phishing. Now, social engineering is the art of manipulating human beings, not technology. It's used to deceive people into divulging confidential or personal information. I find the psychology behind social engineering quite fascinating, and we'll dive deeper into that shortly. And it may not be immediately apparent, but phishing is indeed a form of social engineering. However, we're using technology to manipulate the human via email. Now, in the case of the fappening, Ryan Collins was eventually caught and sentenced to 18 months in jail. But the damage was done. Those photos were shared online, causing immense psychological distress to Jennifer and other celebrities involved. Ryan Collins knew what he was doing. He didn't just send an email saying, Hey, this is Apple. Please confirm your password. Now, that would just be too obvious. This email was crafted to look like a genuine email from Apple. Now, many of us have incredibly busy lives. We juggle our career with family demands, our social life, if you have one of those. But especially in this case, Jennifer and the other celebrities were caught off guard and didn't scrutinise every email that hit their inbox. This sets the stage for our deep dive into the psychology of social engineering. Now, this story isn't just about a celebrity getting hacked. It's a valuable lesson in how easily that our perceptions Beliefs, our trust, can be manipulated and exploited. While Jennifer's ordeal happened nearly a decade ago now, phishing attacks and social engineering remain a significant threat to both individuals and organisations. So let's delve deeper into the psychology part. Now initially you may wonder how he managed to trick so many celebrities into divulging their username and password. It's actually much simpler than you might think. Now let's discuss the art of fishing and how we got here. If we trace this back through history, way beyond the Nigerian print scams, we find a story of the Spanish prisoner. And this is a scam that dates back to the early 19th century. Now, in this scam, the victim would receive a letter claiming to be a wealthy Spanish prisoner trying to smuggle a large sum of money outside of Spain. So we have impersonation. 
Now, to make the letter more convincing, they would use the name of a real wealthy person that was in prison and potentially forge signatures and stamps. Now, the prisoner, according to the letter, needed financial assistance to bribe officials and secure his release. In return for the victim's help, the prisoner promised a huge financial reward. Now, of course, time is of the essence. They had to do this quickly in order for the money to be moved outside of Spain unnoticed. And you see where this is going, but we can apply the same psychological principles to modern day phishing attacks. Number one, authority of trust. This is leveraging the reputation of well known companies like Apple or Google, or Spanish prisoner in that case, to gain the victim's trust. Second, we have the attention to detail, creating emails that look just like the real thing. The third one, and this is probably one of the most important, a sense of urgency. If you see this, this raises red flags. This induces a feeling of immediate concern or panic. They're trying to prompt you into quick action. The aim is to minimize that scrutiny. Number four, commitment and consistency, encouraging the victim to take the initial step, like clicking on a link, making it more likely now they'll continue down the road, entering their credentials later on. And then number five, the exploitation of overconfidence. This one is often overlooked, but I think it's one of the most significant uh, psychological traits here. What they do is take advantage of the victim's belief that they are too tech savvy to fall for a scam. You've heard these people, oh, it wouldn't happen to me. I'm not going to fall for that. This actually makes them more vulnerable to manipulation. You can never be too careful. Now, the first psychological principle here is leveraging that trusted name. Ryan Collins created emails that appeared to be genuine messages from Apple and Google. Now, we're talking identical color schemes, fonts, and even the style of wording that these companies use. Attention to detail is now the second psychological principle. The more authentic the email appears, the less likely someone will question it. Next is timing and that sense of urgency. You're a busy celebrity and an email alerting you of suspicious activity on your account pops up on your phone. Your immediate reaction might be slight panic. If you've passed the trust and attention test, we may be inclined to take action. When we're rushed, we're more likely to make mistakes. Now, in this case, he didn't ask for passwords directly in the email. He just directed victims to a website which looked just like Apple and Google. Now we're on to the fourth stage, the principle of commitment and consistency. Once we take that first step, like in this case, clicking a link, now we're more likely to continue in that direction. This is really creating a false sense of security where people think that the strong password alone is keeping them safe. Now, Ryan Collins didn't need to crack a single password here. All he needed people to do was just hand them over. And this brings us to perhaps the most unsettling psychological element, exploiting our overconfidence. We all believe this won't happen to us. We wouldn't fall for that. Only idiots fall for scams. But this is precisely what can make us vulnerable. Right, let's recap. We've got that authority of trusted brands. We've got the attention to detail, the sense of urgency, commitment and consistency, and then the exploitation of overconfidence. But now imagine a world where scams aren't just designed by humans like Ryan Collins, but now they're created by artificial intelligence. Now, if you'd have asked me this a year or two ago, I would have said, no, that's science fiction. We're a long way off from that. 
But look at where we are today. Take voice cloning, for example. This is a technology that I have actually used myself to clone my own voice. And it's a machine learning algorithm that creates a synthetic voice, indistinguishable from the real person. And in my case, I access my bank account using my own cloned voice. Now, it is also verified um, with the phone number I was calling from. But if you're not careful, a scammer conducting a SIM swap attack will overcome that very easily. Now, I'm going to talk about SIM swap attacks in more detail later on, but back to AI. Consider the psychological impact. You receive a voicemail. It sounds like your daughter, your son, your wife. Now you're more inclined to believe it. Voice cloning adds that extra layer of psychological um, consistency for scammers to use, authenticity in this case. But it doesn't end there. Text-generating AI like ChatGPT can craft phishing emails that now sound incredibly convincing. And then there's video. We've got advancements in video generation. That's really unbelievable. You've seen Midjourney. Um, if you haven't, check it out. There's Dali 3, which is now um, available through the ChatGPT app. And these can generate very lifelike photos, cartoon drawings, whatever you like. But on top of that, there's things like the Unreal Engine. Unreal Engine 5 which you would probably associate with video games, but this is producing video that you really cannot uh, distinguish from reality. In fact, one of those videos is a car that's on fire. Um, I think it's filmed in a real location, but the car is, is fake, that's uh, computer-generated, but you wouldn't know. It looks 100% um, real. So how do we defend against such sophisticated social engineering attacks in the future? My first piece of advice, it might sound old school, but it's incredibly effective. Have a secret word or keyword only known to you and your close family members. This is your failsafe. So let's say you receive a message urging some immediate action. Just ask them for the secret word. It's a simple step that could confirm that the message is legitimate or not. You might be thinking, OK, the secret word, really? But sometimes simplicity is our best defence. Scammers exploit our emotions and instincts. And a secret word just cuts through all of that, offering a brief moment of clarity and straightforward way to validate the situation. Now, the word doesn't have to be complicated. Uh, the name of uh, a, a cat you used to have. Because you're not... This isn't like a security question where the attacker knows the question. They just don't know any of this. So if you just ask them... What was the nickname I had in school? Or preferably something that can't be found online or, or no one else knows. Then you've got that layer of protection in place. Okay, so we've dissected the psychology behind social engineering. We've looked at the tactics of threat actors like Ryan Collins and even ventured into the realm of AI. But before I wrap up today, there's another critical piece of the puzzle that I want to discuss, and that's SIM swap attacks. Now, I've mentioned this before. Um, but let me recap. A SIM swap attack goes like this. Someone uses social engineering to trick your mobile phone provider into switching your phone number to a new SIM card. They'll pretend to be you. Now, if you're not leading a very private life, in other words, you've got a Facebook account and you're on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn, then your date of birth will be online and your family members on Facebook actually make it easy to determine your mother's maiden name and things like that. Now, you might be thinking, oh, well, I don't put my date of birth online. I'm fine. But how many people have wished you happy birthday, happy 50th, happy 25th, whatever it may be? It's very easy to work out your date of birth. 
Now, when they're successful in these um, social engineering attacks, they can now receive your text messages, your phone calls, and gain access to your two-factor authentication codes using SMS. Now imagine the havoc that they can wreak with that kind of access. Bank accounts, social media, email, you name it, they can infiltrate it. You simply cannot trust the security practices of a mobile phone provider with access to your bank accounts and email. Think about that. You might think your bank is secure, but what about your mobile phone provider? Now remember, social engineering isn't just about hacking technology. It's hacking people. A persuasive attacker can often bypass security measures by convincing customer service reps that they are you. And once they've done that, it's game over. Now, the defence against SIM swap attacks is one I've mentioned before, and it's one I really want to remind you of. I've used prepaid SIM cards now for a very long time. They're registered in an alias name. Now, by doing this, you're adding an extra layer of security. You can do this by paying with a Visa gift card, or you can do what I do and use privacy.com. Now, whether it's privacy.com or Visa gift cards, they're not tied to a name. This is not fraud. You're just simply paying up front for the SIM plan, like you would in cash. There's no name associated with cash, but in this case, it's a prepaid Visa card. Now, this does a number of things. Firstly, no one knows my real SIM card phone number. Why should they? I don't care. I don't give that number out. I don't associate that with iMessage. My primary messaging app is Signal, Signal Messenger. And all my friends and family know that if they want to message me, they have to use Signal. Now, let's say I was to get a phishing message via SMS. Well, I immediately know it's a scam. No one has that number. What if I get it on my Signal Messenger? Well, that would be from an unverified contact. Again, I know it's from a scam. That's how Signal works. You add a contact, you have to verify it's them. And then on top of that, I use my pseudo for virtual phone numbers. And here's where you can really protect yourself from SIM swap attacks. There is no way for me, or anyone else for that matter, to use social engineering to gain access to my phone numbers in my pseudo. I will dive into much more detail about this in a future episode, but in summary... My pseudo relies on the backup of the device to recover those numbers. So if you don't have your backup um, password and the backup of the device set up properly, you can lose those phone numbers and you have to start again. I like that. That's a feature that I want. If a close family member needs to call me, well, they have a dedicated virtual phone number. I have another one for business. Another one I use for my bank. And as you can see now, I've segmented my personal, my business life, my financial communications into separate phone numbers. I've got separate email addresses. And just to wrap up, it's really great to be back on the podcast. I'm going to be releasing these much more frequently. I will not only be talking about privacy in your personal life, but also cybersecurity for the enterprise, for small organizations, for individuals. Security and privacy really do go hand in hand. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.